You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Romans, uh, starting, uh, well, be on chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, page 652, if you'd like to follow along in the seat uh, back Bibles. Here's the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, this study in Romans. Lord, help us to cling to the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as your word tells us. And Lord, we have this assurance because of what you did for us on the cross. We give you praise, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Charlie. Well, good morning. My name's Pastor Jeremy, and I'm so glad to be back after some weeks on paid time off. Special thanks to the church on on giving me some time with the family. Uh, One of the goals that my family and I had over this break, or rather a goal I had for my family, was I I wanted to do a couple family meetings and get us all in the same room and clarify some of the distinctives of of what makes our family our family. Uh, Some think of these as like values, uh, principles. It's, it's like the unwritten rules about here's the way we do it around here. That's what I wanted to spend a little bit of time with my, uh, with my kids and my wife. And while some may have an allergic reaction to such an idea and it feels legalistic, uh, my heart, and as Brooke and I have been talking, our heart is to create this gospel environment 
where our kids, when, when we launch them out of our house, would be able to understand very practically, oh, like, like the gospel really does impact the way we do life as a family. The, the gospel isn't just something that mom and dad talk about or we sing about on a Sunday. This actually shapes the way we do life. And I would, at a different time, nerd out and give you all my points and subpoints. For now, here's just one that gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. One of the values, one of the gospel environments we're trying to bake into our kids is this idea that we admit when we're wrong. We admit when we're wrong, and Jesus knows we're wrong a lot. That's the way we try to talk about it in our little house. We admit when we're wrong, and Jesus knows we're wrong a lot. So when daddy's wrong, he wants to admit when he's wrong. Jesus knows he's wrong a lot. And, and kids, when you're wrong, we want you to admit when you're wrong. And this is part of how the gospel shapes us. Something unique. This is, like, this is how we do it around here. If you're a Kraus, this is what we do. We admit when we're wrong. Now, I would like you to not practice, you know, double check with me when I'm wrong to see if I really hold that as much with you. But we are trying to bake that into the family uh, uh, because we want clear identity. This is who we are. If you've ever watched the Disney movie Moana, there's this moment in the movie when she gets out on a boat and she's lost and not sure who she is and where she's going. And she's trying to figure out direction of life. And then all of a sudden this beautiful song comes on and there's this big crescendo and, and she belts out, I am Moana. And you're just like, oh, that gives me goosebumps. That's so cool. And, and one of the reasons this song and this movie is so popular, one of the reasons a lot of movies for that matter are popular is because as humans, we are just yearning for clarity about who we are and the direction we're supposed to take, and, and how are we to live as people who call ourselves Christians? How, how are we in this family of God to actually find our identity and direction? And of course, this struggle with identity and who are we and where are we going, it's not new to our generation, and it's not just Hollywood and Disney that makes a bunch of money off of this theme. Uh, philosophers for centuries, thousands of years, have been wrestling with these huge questions. Who are we? What are we made for? Where are we going? And it's one of the reasons I think so many of us are willing to spend $10 on a movie ticket, plus the 15 bucks for the popcorn, to lose ourselves for just a couple hours so that we can find some character who actually knows who in the world they are and where they're going. That just feels so good to us because so many of us, even though we call ourselves Christians, I think we find ourselves lost. Like we're out on a boat going, like, what are we doing again? And what is this all about? Well, this morning, we're in Romans 8. And in Romans chapter 8, some would say this is the greatest chapter in the Bible of all time. If you've got a, another couple I'm willing to consider it, this is on the short list of the goat chapters. We're going to see through the first half of this chapter who we are. And what we've been put here for. And, and, and this chapter is so powerful because it speaks so profoundly to our identity. If you're here and you are in Christ, you're going to get direction from Paul. Because so often we feel lost. So many of us can feel like we're out in the middle of a boat. Wondering who we are, where we're going. And too many of us, we walk around lonely and confused. Wondering, God, could you just like give me some trajectory. If you're here, 
you don't need to feel condemned and lost when you walk out of here today. And, and while this afternoon, God the Father, he may not call a family meeting to have you in, but if he did, if the Father was going to call a family meeting and say, hey, sons of God, daughters of God, I want you to come into the living room. Let's have a talk. I want to tell you who you are. It's my, it's my opinion he would use language from Romans 8, 1 to 17 to tell you how it is that children of God are to operate in his family. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's do this. Romans 8, 1 to 17. I'm praying that Romans will rock your face off today. Jump into me with one of the greatest chapters of all time. It's got two big ideas in 1 to 17, and that's why we'll have two ideas in the sermon. The way we do uh, uh, preaching around here, if you're new to Mill Creek, is we read the text, and we want the text to be clearly explained to you. So whatever the big ideas in the text is, that's the big idea of the sermon. If you think to yourself, I didn't like the big idea of the sermon today, that's okay. Your problem's with Paul, not me. I'm just saying what the text says. That's my job. Big idea number one, which, by the, by the way, is a lot longer than point two. Kids, if you're going to lean in on this, point one's going to feel like forever because, well, it's 13 verses. It's the majority of it. Here's big idea number one. If you're a Christian, you are spirit-filled. If you're a Christian, you are spirit-filled. I'm drawing this from verses 1 to 13. And if it's been a minute since you've been here with us in the book of Romans or, or you don't even know what's going on in the book of Romans, let me try to catch you up uh, very quickly. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, Paul introduces this letter to a Christian church in Rome that is struggling with division, and he lets them know that no matter how hard you try, you will never be good enough on your own. You cannot be justified, uh, just as if I've never sinned, you can never do that by yourself. Which leaves a lot of those in Rome, Jews or Gentiles, who were kind of doing some infighting, left them going, well, what is our hope? And so what I think is the best paragraph of all time, not chapter, but paragraph in 321, Paul comes in and he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so there's this wonderful breath of fresh air for all of these Christians in Rome who are like, do I have to follow the law? Do I not have to follow the law? Can I ever be good enough? Paul's answer is no, but you can be justified by faith. Just as if I've never sinned if you trust in Jesus Christ. And so Really, chapters 1 to 5 are all about this huge idea of justified by faith. You're not good enough on your own, but through Jesus you can be justified. Then Paul moves into chapter 6 and he says, look, if you're justified by faith, then you don't keep on sinning. And then in chapter 7 he says, and you're released from the law, but he, he begins to touch on this real difficult reality at the end of chapter 7, which is, well, if I'm, if I'm an new creation, what is this battle and war of sin that I have inside of my heart? And it would have left those in the Roman church listening to Paul's letter being read. They would have been asking the question, well, now who am I? Like, who am I, Paul? Am I a struggling sinner who's still wrestling out? Is that who I am? Because that's who I was. Or is something fundamentally changed inside of me that empowers me now to battle sin? Paul, who am I? How am I supposed to live? That would have been the question. And Paul answers this right off the bat in 8.1. If you're a Christian, Paul says, I'll tell you who you are. You are spirit-filled. That's what Paul's arguing for. You are spirit-filled from the text. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
That's something you should know is that when Paul says you are in Christ, that's the way he uses in the New Testament a phrase for Christians. You're in Christ, union with Christ. In this chapter, a synonymous idea is you are filled with the Spirit. Those things mean the same thing. Being a Christian, being in Christ or Spirit-filled, he's using those parallel and he's wanting confused Christians in Rome to know who you are. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are spirit-filled. And if you're spirit-filled, you are under no condemnation. Here then, one of my all-time favorite gospel truths. I haven't counted all the gospel truths in the New Testament. If you'd care to count them and give me a number, I'd be happy to entertain it. Over 100, I'd guess. But if I was going to make a list of what's my favorite, I think this is number one. Man, no condemnation. There's no condemnation. If you've been justified by faith, no matter what your brain is telling you, no matter what your friends may tell you, no matter what the culture is telling you, if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. That's not who you are. Pastor, it's a little bit early to be so excited in the sermon, bro. That doesn't happen till later. All right. But you got to tattoo this in your brain. There is freedom that Jesus brings you. And there's a gospel joy and excitement that accompanies being in Christ Jesus. Because I know what it's like to say that I believe the gospel, but then to walk under this fog of condemnation. I've experienced it firsthand to say, oh yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, yeah, I sing these songs. But then, then you wake up and you feel icky and you just feel like there's nothing I can do to please God and I'm just such a failure and what should I do and what's the point, man? I've felt that before. I've lived that. And what Paul's wanting you to get is that's not how Christians live. That's not Christian living. That's living under condemnation. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if your thoughts are condemning you, if your heart is criticizing you, if there is this disparaging, discouraging disapproval, a haunting reality that you are not good enough, though you believe in Christ, no more. There is therefore now no condemnation. Could I get just an itty bitty amen? amen. Thank you. Well, I'm coming now. No condemnation. I'd love for you to write that down. There's no condemnation if you're in the spirit. Now understand a, a crucial difference between conviction and condemnation. When I was in college, I had a pastor explain to me the difference between conviction and condemnation, and this is crucial. Conviction is what the Spirit does when you have sinned in a very particular, specific way. In case you haven't read the New Testament, there's plenty of positive and negative commands, and it says don't do that. So if you got lit last night and you're like, man, I kind of feel bad about that. Well, it's because there's a New Testament text that says don't get drunk. So if you're struggling with alcohol and you're in here feeling like, I kind of feel like I shouldn't have done that last night. Well, that sounds like conviction. The Holy Spirit, doing what the Holy Spirit's supposed to do, identifying a particular issue in your heart that's wrong. During the paid time off, the, the Spirit was convicting me of some of my anger issues. That's a lot different than condemnation. Conviction is when the Spirit identifies something particular and is working you on it and, and leading you to realize, man, I have to repent of that. 
I got to say sorry. And whether that sin issue is 10 days old or 10 years old, I don't care how old it is, if you haven't applied the gospel to that sin issue, man, that thing's still infected and festering, and you need to bring the medicine of the gospel to that conviction area, and Jesus is going to free you from that, and you could be healed of that. But that's conviction, which is very different than condemnation. Condemnation is this general, that one's specific, this one's just general, sense of, I'm a failure. Condemnation is this fog that, that, that you walk with, that, that this voice in your mind that just tells you all the things that you're never good enough about and you'll never measure up about and all these ways that if anybody really knew all who you were, if anybody really saw the tape, Jesus wouldn't even love you. Condemnation is this idea that the, that the Father, uh, God the Father, has is, is got his arms crossed at you and is tapping his foot and going, what the rock is wrong with you? Like, I sent Jesus down the cross. What's your problem? Why don't you get your act together? And this idea that he's, he's just so disgusted with you, that's condemnation. And if you're here and you're feeling that I am such a loser in the eyes of God, even though you've believed the gospel, if you think that you have disappointed God in just a general sense, what Paul's saying is that's condemnation. And you're, if you're in Christ, you're not a loser in the eyes of God. That's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell and flush it right back down there because if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Instead, you're to be free from the law of sin and death. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here Paul's describing two laws. There's the law of sin and death, and then there's this law, spirit of life. There's two types of laws. The law of the spirit of life, synonymous with being justified by faith, being in Christ. You can live that way, or you can live in the law of sin and death, which the law of sin and death is trying to earn God's love by obeying. The law of the spirit of life is, I've trusted in Christ for salvation and now I can obey. The law of sin and death is, I'm going to try to obey to earn the love of God. Paul's point is, those who are spirit-filled, those who are spirit-filled live according to the law of the spirit of life. That's how they live. Who am I? Who are you? If you're in Christ, you are spirit-filled. That's who we are. That's how we're all supposed to live. Okay, okay. There's two ways to live, Pastor. I'm seeing what Paul's saying. I, I, I want to live this proper way. How do I do that? How do we come to be spirit-filled? Here's 100 Proof Gospel from verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul's explaining that if you're spirit-filled, here's how you have come to be spirit-filled in case you missed Romans 3, 21 to 26, etc. Jesus, he came in the flesh, okay? Which means when Jesus really was born from Mary, the first Christmas is when we celebrate that he put on flesh. Before the manger, Jesus didn't have a body. At the manger, he has a body. For eternity, he has now been embodied the incarnation he put on flesh. Jesus actually has a physical body. He came in the flesh. 
but he is the divine son of God. That's what Romans 8, 3 is saying, that he came and he did what you and I can't do. He looked at the law and he obeyed it completely. And in so doing, he condemned sin in the flesh. See that in the text? He condemned sin in the flesh. How cool is that? There's some condemnation we talked in 8, 1. If you're in Jesus, you're not condemned. What is condemned? Sin is condemned. He obeyed all the commandments that you and I couldn't. He perfectly accomplished the law, and then he gave that to us. That's what Jesus did. This is where you get the doctrine of imputation. It's your $5 theology word for the day. If you write it down, be so thrilled. Imputation, sound it out. Spell just like it sounds. Imputation means assigning to one person the qualities of another. That's what imputation is. Assigning to one person the qualities of of another. So I, Jeremy, Romans 1, 18 to 320 tells very clearly, I, Jeremy, am a sinner. No one is righteous. No, not one. But those qualities, that's what I bring to the table in the gospel equation. It's what you bring to the table. What do we contribute to this wonderful gift of the gospel? We bring our sin. <laughs> so I bring to the table, my sin. But my sin gets imputed to Jesus Christ. It is assigned to him. That's what he takes at the cross. But that's not all. That's single imputation. We believe in double imputation, baby. What's double imputation? It's where Jesus' perfectness gets imputed or assigned to those who are in Christ. That's what I count myself. If you're a Christian, that's what you would count yourself. So your sin assigned to Jesus his righteousness assigned to you so that if you are in Christ, this is why there's no condemnation. When God the Father looks at you, he does not see your sin. That got imputed to Jesus. At the cross, that thing got dealt with. All your sin, past, present, future. What about three weeks from now when I'm gonna sin? That stuff too, all of it. It's been assigned to Jesus and he paid the price if you're a Christian and his perfect righteousness got assigned to you so that if you're at a family meeting this afternoon with God the Father and he looks at you and he smells you, he goes, you smell like Jesus, bro. Girl, you smell like Jesus. You think you're dragging all this sin and shame into the family meeting, not to God. He just sees the righteousness of God, Christ on you. So here's how you're to live spirit-filled. No condemnation. And number two, you're to live in Christ's righteousness. Like Paul wants you to live this way. You could wake up and go, man, my thoughts might accuse me. My heart might accuse me. Friends might accuse me. But if I've rightly dealt with conviction from the Holy Spirit, then I can live in Christ's righteousness. I can live in Christ's righteousness. Okay, well, how would I know? That's what Paul explains in 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's this kind of ping pong match you might have noticed right there. He keeps going flesh, spirit, flesh, Spirit, if you missed some of the verbal ping pong game, here it is, a list you can write it down if it's helpful. The flesh-filled live this way according to Paul. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's what they're thinking about. They're flesh-filled. Verse 5. 
Uh, secondly, those living flesh-filled, they end up dead. Verse 6. Those living flesh-filled are hostile to God. They don't submit to God's law. Those are both seven. Verse 8. Those living flesh-filled cannot please God. Pastor, I wanted to live flesh-filled. I wondered if that would please God. Answer, no. Hey, none of this category over here does anything for God the Father. That's living for you. That's pleasing you. That's glorifying you. That's not how Christians live. Rather, here's, the, here's how you are to live spirit-filled. You set your minds on the thing of the spirit. So your brain's not thinking about the flesh. It's thinking about the spirit. And they have life and peace. Not death, life and peace. And then these last couple aren't explicit in the text, but based on the contrast, we can see what Paul's deriving is those spirit-filled, they obey God. Those spirit-filled please God. Those spirit-filled are aligned with God. Now understand that this back and forth thing that Paul's given us, this ping pong game, isn't a litmus test. He's not, he's not saying, oh, now Romans, I want you to just take a self-inventory to decide which one of these you, you align with more. I'm two on the left, I'm one on the right, a couple I don't know. It's not a litmus test. No, this is, this is describing how Christians live. This is who a Christian is supposed to be. He's saying, hey, Christian, if you've been justified by faith, you got to know your identity. You're not flesh-filled. Verse 9, you, however, Roman Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But Paul's saying to anybody here who feels lost in life, if you're feeling confused, I'm feeling condemned, I don't know what life's about, I don't know where I'm going, I'm not sure how to live, I, I want to believe the gospel, I thought I believed the gospel, but, but I'm not, I'm in, I'm in a sailboat in the middle of the ocean, man, what do I do? He's saying, well, you're not flesh-filled. Christian, you're spirit-filled now. That's how you're supposed to live. So now, go live that way. Here's your purpose in life. Sorry if you've been a bit foggy, Romans, but here's how you're to live. And so it is for us, Mill Creek. Paul's saying, good grief, you've got the third member of the Trinity living inside of you. That's who the Spirit is. If you missed the memo, he is there in Genesis 1-2, hovering over the Spirit of the waters. Almighty God living inside of you in the form of the Spirit. Giving you life. So you don't live flesh-filled. You are to live Spirit-filled. Now, I need to calm down because we got a lot more text to go. And this is the longest first point known to man. I know that, but I'm, I mean, at some point you got to set the record for the longest first point. This is the record, so. For a couple more verses, kids, and then we'll be out of first point. Look at verse 11. Paul's wanting to make sure the Christians understand their identity and who's inside of him. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's what we believe as Christians. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, I'm going to do my best to calmly explain what these couple verses say. Paul is saying... If you're a Christian, then you have 
the very same powerful spirit that raised the dead body of Jesus Christ from the grave in you. That's what he just said. If you are a Christian, the power that is in you is the same power that went into the grave 2,000 years ago when Jesus was dead in the grave and brought him back to life. That power lives in you. That's the closest I got to an inside voice on that thing. The power that raised Christ from the tomb is giving you life and is empowering you not to live flesh-filled, but to live obedient to the Spirit. Who then is our identity? How then are we to live not flesh-filled, not bowing down to the idols of the world, not living in carnal ways, but living for the glory of Christ and obeying him no matter what the world says, no matter how often we're marked, we're going to say, man, I am empowered by the Spirit to do all that you've commanded to do and all these New Testament imperatives. They're not hard for me. I'm honored to get to live for you. I got the Spirit of God inside of me and I can obey because the Spirit's working in me. That's who you are, Christian. If you're a Christian, you're to live spirit-filled. And that's the application here at the end of point one. How do I apply this section? You live spirit-filled. Okay, well, how does that look? Well, first, don't live under condemnation. And if you're walking around with your head hung low, if you're a Christian and you believe the gospel, but you're walking around with your head hung low, thinking you're some abject failure, you're not living out of who you are, according to the scriptures. So don't live under condemnation. And second, don't live in the flesh engaging in sin. Say no to sin. Say no to sin by living in the Spirit. And living in the Spirit might look like this. If you're in Christ, head up, shoulders back. Head up, shoulders back. Not like you're King Kong. We already know we're not King Kong. Jesus is the King Kong. But I've got his imputed righteousness, so I don't have to walk around like, like I'm some abject failure. You know, i got Christ. Now go live like it. We have the spirit of God inside of us. We can live like that. That's what Paul's saying. And you know what? At this point, I'm ready to go sit down and pray. and We'll sing some songs. But I'll be darned. I got 14 to 17 still to preach. So we got to keep on rolling. And if you thought this one was going to be good, wait till point two. I'm about to blast off into outer space because we are not only spirit filled. Get this. We are sons of God. Sons of God. God, from the text, 14.2, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Because you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoptions by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Prior to salvation, you had a spirit of slavery inside of you. A slave to whatever it is that was your master. You couldn't choose glory and obedience to God. You were a slave, but no longer. In Christ, you have not only received the Holy Spirit, but now you are an adopted son of God. That's what Paul's saying. Now, of course, adoption's a real big deal in my family. My wife and I have adopted a couple kids we love adoption. And then perhaps some of you are really familiar with adoption. Maybe you've adopted or, or you've thought about it. 
or, or you were adopted or your friends were. And while we may have an idea of what adoption looks like in our culture, it's actually a little different in Rome 2,000 years ago. Here's what you got to know about Roman adoption. I got this from Stott's commentary on Romans. An adopted son 2,000 years ago was chosen, would be handpicked by a wealthy Roman benefactor to carry on the name of this very important, respected individual in Roman society. That's how Roman adoption worked. Now, this Roman guy who's so famous and has so much money and and really cares about his reputation, he could have selected his eldest son to carry on his name, but if his eldest son's a schmuck, he doesn't want to do that. And that's his choice. He got the money. He's got the name. He's got the prestige. And so if he doesn't want to give it to his eldest son or any of his sons, he can go adopt somebody. And that person he selects then becomes next in line so that when he passes all of his wealth and all the honor, all the accolades, all the land, all of it gets put on the adopted son he selects. And of course, in some cases it was because I don't like the eldest son. He's a jerk to me, so I'm not going to give the money to him. I'm not going to give the reputation to him. In other cases, he couldn't have a son. Maybe he had no kids, so that's why he adopts. Here's what's really cool, at least for me. The adopted son in Roman culture becomes equal with all the other biological children. Equal. Uh, just as equal as any other family if, if, the, if the head is handing it off to his firstborn son. Nobody in Roman culture looks at this guy who adopted one and goes, oh, that's second class. There's no such thing. They're both equal. And in Roman culture, whoever you hand it off to, whether it's a biological son or an adopted son, makes no difference. There's nothing inferior about the adopted son. In fact, in some respects, the adopted son is even more respected than the biological son because they had been handpicked. Because this wealthy benefactor had handpicked the adopted son. Adoption 2,000 years ago would have been like hitting the lottery. That's what it would have felt like. You got adopted? Oh my goodness, you hit the lottery, man. You went from a nobody to a somebody. It's a great honor to be an adopted son. And get this, the moment a child was adopted, any former debts they held. Man, I owe 20 grand to such and such and so and so. Gone. Forgiven. Yeah, but I'm, I've, I've sort of got this record that I need to do business with. Nope, gone, forgiven. Clean slate. The new son would take on a new name with a new identity and would have a future that is as bright and brilliant as anybody could imagine. That's what adoption was. And adoption was free to the child. They did nothing. Now, of course, adoption was terribly costly to the, to the wealthy man, but he had the money to do it, so he's okay with it, and he's getting to handpick the person he wants to carry on his name. And here, then, is the picture Paul has in mind when he says, you as Christians have been adopted. When he says you've received the spirit of adoption, the father would go to where orphans hang out, oftentimes in Rome, the trash heap. That's the only place they're going to find any food. And he would go handpick. The father handpicked you, orphan. Handpicked you and said, I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to erase your debt. And any criminal record you have, it's going to be wiped clean. And I'm going to do all of that for you. I'm going to bring you into my family. You're going to sit at the family table. And you are going to be an heir of mine. Co-heir with Christ. He picked you. If you're in Christ, he paid your debts. He did it all. What an honor for you. 
16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The idea is this. We were once orphans with no hope, but the most respected father in the history of the universe, the one daddy that if any of us could have been in Rome, we would have want that daddy to pick us and adopt us. If you're in Christ, he did it. The best father of all time, whether your earthly father was legit or whether your earthly father was an abject failure, the very best father of all time, the goat father. He picked you, made you his son. And, and ladies, don't get thrown off by this idea of son. This isn't some patriarchal, elitist, sexist approach that Paul's taken like women don't have a place. In fact, through the beginning of Romans 8 in the original text, there's a lot of masculine um, uh, pointers that he's talking to. And when he gets here into 14 to 17, he moves it to neutral. And you can actually see in the text in verse 12, there's a footnote that says, so then brothers, which captures this idea of brothers and sisters. He's explaining we are now adopted children of God. And, and the reason he uses sons is not to belittle you and not to reinforce some sort of patriarchal culture. What you have to understand is, ladies, in Rome, a wealthy benefactor never picked a gal. And, and, and if that makes you mad, then take a time machine, go back to Rome and fix it 2,000 years ago. I guess talk to Caesar or something. But that's just the way it was. They didn't pick a woman to take over the family. But what Paul does in this text is he says, anybody who's in Christ, no matter your gender, are both seen as sons of God. This is actually lifting women up higher than the culture. Saying in God's economy, in God's family, both men and women have the same title. There's not hierarchy in God's family. despite our tendency as men and women to wander around as orphans, even though we might have wished for an identity, wished for a family, though we might feel lost and confused by all of our failures, Paul's saying then to Christians, you gotta know who you are. You are spirit-filled and you are an adopted son of God. You don't have to live like a slave anymore. You can come live like a son, and you have access to the best father of all time, you can even call him Abba, which is like the equivalent for dad. You get to call him the intimate family name. That's who you are. And as we look at that last verse in our text, you might notice he does introduce this very sobering reality of suffering. That Becoming an adopted child of God doesn't mean you don't suffer. And he only briefly mentions it in this text, so I'm only briefly mentioning it in the sermon. Next week, he's going to mention it more. Next week, it'll bring more up. It'll be a more prominent theme in our sermon. I hope you'll come back next week to get to see how we are to live in view of suffering. But the idea is we can endure whatever suffering God brings because we are children of God. As a co-heir of Christ, son of God, we can live and endure whatever suffering we have to live and endure because that's what Christ did. Christ, as the Son of God, came and he suffered and then he had glory. So it is for us. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Is your mind blown yet? I mean, if Moana gives you goosebumps, this thing should have us on Mars, don't you think? You are, if you are in Christ, you are now a son of God. And here's the application then for point two. Application, live as a son of God. 
You have the spirit inside of you, and now you live as an adopted son. So you don't have to live in fear. You're not a slave. You're not a victim to whatever impulses you might feel. I've got all these sinful tendencies. Yeah, but the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And you are now an adopted son of God. So go live like it. You have the brightest future in front of you. Like some of you in here, I suppose, you're probably in line to inherit six or seven digits, maybe ten digits. I don't know. You don't, none of y'all showed me your bank account, so I have no idea. I don't know how rich your folks are or how rich the grand folks are. But some people in here undoubtedly have a big inheritance to look forward to. Congrats to you. But it ain't nothing compared to the inheritance you have waiting for you as an adopted child of God. So whatever the number is that you may think you're going to inherit someday when you're grand folks pass or your folks pass, it just can't compare to, the, to God the Father who owns a thousand, on a, cattle, a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. And, and you're in line to inherit that in the new heavens and the new earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, if you're in Christ, you get to walk around and be like, you know who my daddy is? <laughs> my daddy can beat up you. My daddy's making count bigger than yours. You can live as an adopted son of God. Understand, though, as a son of God, you will suffer before glory. That's the way it works. This is who we are. This is how we live. Spirit-filled sons of God, prepared and expecting to suffer before entering glory. The Father, if God the Father was going to have a family meeting this afternoon and call us all into the living room, this is the language, some of the language I think he would use to help you know who you are. If you're here and you are in the family, then live this way. Live this way. The Spirit's inside of you. You're a son of God. Now go live this way. If, if, if you're listening to this sermon, whether this is the very first time you've ever been to Mill Creek or you've been checking this out for months and months, whether you're here in person or, or online, if you're here and you realize, man, I'm not in the family. Hey, pastor, I'm not in the family of God. Well, then don't you want to be adopted? Have the best dad of all time? What's stopping you? I mean, economically, it's well in your favor. Eternally, also in your favor. The joy and hope is in your favor. And, and if you're sitting here thinking, but you don't realize what a mess I am, I'm telling you, God the Father, he'll adopt any of us if we repent of our sins. All you got to do is say sorry. You just got to be humble and admit you can't save yourself. You can't adopt yourself. Only Father can adopt you. And if... And if you thought to yourself, well, God seems like the kind of father who would be willing to adopt even somebody like me. You're right. He is. He'd adopt any of us. Believe today. If, if, you, if you don't know how to do that, it's as simple as in your heart of hearts, truly telling God, I want to be in your family. I, I repent of my sins. I trust in you. And, and if we could help you do that, find us after the service. Any of us here would love to talk to you through that. Let's pray. Christ, thank you for your word. I thank you for Romans 8, and I pray for those here who are Christians that, that they could live out of their identity. Lord, for anyone here who, who's not a Christian, I pray, Spirit, you would do the powerful saving work that only you can do, and your word would do work in our hearts. Do work in their hearts, and I pray you'd save. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.